If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The 11 years between the execution of King Charles I and the restoration of his son Charles II in 1660 are among the most turbulent in all of British history. And it was a period dominated by one man, Oliver Cromwell. Hailing from humble origins, Cromwell achieved the seemingly impossible, affecting a dizzying rise through the ranks to become Britain's first non-monarchical head of state. So what drove Cromwell to such heights? Why did he inspire such devotion among his followers? And what was it like to live through this turbulent era? Spencer Mizen sat down with Ronald Hutton, Professor of History at the University of Bristol, to answer your questions on life under Cromwell. Great, sir. Ronald, thank you for joining us today. Now, just to set the scene and to give our listeners a little bit of context around the events of the mid-17th century. I I wonder if you could start off by telling us when Oliver Cromwell came to power, how long he was in power for, and over which realms he ruled. Oliver Cromwell's the only commoner ever to become head of state in Britain, and he did so as a result of the Civil Wars, the 1640s. The First Civil War made him the supreme cavalry general of Parliament, uh, 
The Second Civil War made him an independent general of Parliament. The Third Civil War made him the commander-in-chief of Parliament's armed forces. And the next year, his army staged a coup and made him head of state. That's 1654. And he remained Lord Protector, the head of the state of unified Republican Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England until his death in 1658. Now, I guess the the period we're going to be mainly talking about uh, today runs from the execution of Charles I in 1649 and the restoration of his son, Charles II, in 1660. I just wonder if you could just run us through the main milestones of that period. What, what are the things that our listeners really need to know about what went on in these 11 years? They're probably the most crowded uh, 11 years in English history. We're talking 1649 to 60, which is the time of our one and only republic. 1649, the king is executed, the monarchy, the House of Lords, the Episcopal Church of England with its bishops and cathedrals and ceremonies are all abolished and a republic is established. It's established through a one-chamber parliament that the army, which has staged a coup, has purged down from an original two-chamber one. And after four years, the army gets tired of working with its own creation, this purge parliament, and slings it out. It then actually chooses a parliament. It nominates MPs itself to try and get its way. But even doing that, the result is not a tame parliament for the army. It's complete chaos, as MPs argue amongst themselves. At that point, the army goes in for Plan C. It scraps its latest parliament, and rather like cavalry officers taming horses for battle, it decides that elected parliaments need taming by the army. So it produces a constitution with Oliver Cromwell in charge, and a powerful council helping him, taking the role of the old House of Lords. And they share power with an elected House of Commons. And by sharing the power, the hope is they'll control the Commons and get it to do their business. Doesn't work. Whole thing falls apart twice. First, a parliament refuses to recognise the government. Second, a parliament says it will recognise the government if it stages a counter-revolution, goes back to monarchy, House of Lords, and a tougher church, a more ceremonious church. But they're willing to make Oliver king. But the army won't buy that, and therefore neither does Oliver. And he's now completely stuck He goes into this kind of political and personal paralysis for a summer and then collapses and dies. It's his son, Richard, that takes over his job. And Richard decides basically to throw the army overboard and have the counter-revolution that the uh, parliaments have always wanted. But he underestimates the army, which strikes back and throws him out. And the final act of the drama is that the army calls back its very first parliament, the one that made the original revolution of abolishing the king, the House of Lords, and the bishops, and then falls out with that all over again. But instead of spinning the roulette wheel another time, for the first time, the army splits. 
and the army holding down Scotland decides it's time for a counter-revolution, that trying to get a deal with parliaments that just don't want to cooperate is useless, and they defeat the army in England call a parliament and invite it to do what it wants, and it brings back the old royal family, the old House of Lords, and the old Church of England. So there you have 11 of the most complicated years in English history dished up on a plate. And as you've alluded to there, Oliver Cromwell cast a very long shadow over these 11 years. Now, I want to now turn to a question which has been submitted by Denise Davidson over social media. And she asks, what made soldiers follow Oliver Cromwell into battle? So just to broaden out a little bit, I'd like kind of like to ask you, what kind of person was Oliver Cromwell? And what were the characteristics that drove his meteoric rise to power and made him such an irresistible figure? (laughs) Oliver Cromwell's got three characteristics which make him a superb military leader of a revolutionary army. The first is that he's incredibly intelligent and incredibly charismatic. He's a great speaker. He's a perfect soldier. He leads from the front. He's top-notch at tactics and strategy. And he's incredibly motivational. So people just follow him. But also he's got an ideological pull because he's totally committed to a religious system based on freedom of conscience. In other words, that people who want to opt out of the national church and do something else that's radical and Protestant should be allowed to do so at least for a while. And that's a very small minority position. But it does mean that those who hold it gravitate to Oliver as their natural leader. They sign up in his army, they follow him devotedly. And when they end up dominating Parliament's army, they turn on politics and begin reshaping the nation. And then we turn to a question from Emil Cromwell, also submitted on social media. And he asks, was it always... Oliver Cromwell's intention to execute Charles I. I mean, did he always have really radical ambitions or did they kind of crystallise slowly over time? Like most of his party, Oliver got more radical with time. He certainly didn't want to get rid of the monarchy. He wanted to defeat the king and tame him and put him back as the puppet of a state which reflected the tastes and ambitions of Oliver and his soldiers and some of his parliamentary masters. Charles had an entirely different vision of England. He wasn't keen on this, but also the deal-breaker was that Oliver came to realise how much so many of his soldiers, including officers, hated the king, that basically they wouldn't forgive him for having fought against them in the Civil War. And so Oliver changed sides quite dramatically a couple of years after the Civil War ended and joined the lobby to get rid of the king. Do we ever get a sense that he felt any uh, regrets for the role he played in the execution of the king? I see no sign whatsoever that Oliver ever regretted anything. Right, okay. And certainly not the execution of the king. He played a very prominent part in the trial of the king and getting the king sent to death. And there's a story that uh, after the king had been beheaded and was lying in a coffin in the banqueting house at Whitehall, that Oliver appeared quietly in the night, looked at him with regret and muttered cruel necessity. But the story doesn't surface till the 1740s, which is a hundred years later. It's at least fifth hand, if it's true at all. And the body was not in the banqueting house, so whoever made it up 
wasn't getting his facts right. Or if it is a true memory, it's become so distorted, it's hardly worthless. And as a complete curtain dropper in all this, the original person supposed to have told the story said he wasn't sure it was Oliver. Okay. But do we do we get a sense of how um, Cromwell's role in the execution of Charles I changed the nation's perception of Cromwell himself? Did they really think this is a man who, who means business now? The nation was always very divided over Oliver Cromwell. A lot of it was extremely hostile. Uh, for one thing, most of the nation was either royalist or neutral in the Civil War. Cromwell's side were a political minority. Also, Cromwell then backed the radicals in his party, so he boxed himself into an even smaller minority in the nation. And he rose to power because of violence, because of the coups staged by his soldiers. And there are very few civilians anywhere in the world who enjoy being on the receiving end of military coup d'etat to put armed men in power. And so his regime was fatally undermined, first by the fact that it was resting upon armed might, second by the fact that it embraced a religious policy of tolerating a wide range of radical groups who wanted to work, worship outside the national church, who most of the nation didn't want to exist. Okay, so we now turn to a question submitted by Sweden in Hungary. And that question is, how different was Cromwell's rule to that of a monarch? So I guess this is quite an interesting point, isn't it? Because Cromwell plays a leading role, as we've seen, in uh, having the king executed in 1649. But then in 1653, he has himself declared Lord Protector, which kind of confirms his status as the most powerful man in Britain and Ireland. Was he a king in all but name? Cromwell certainly isn't a king in all but name, and he makes sure that he's not. He is very much a constitutional ruler with strictly limited powers and shares decision-making and executive authority, first with a powerful council and an elected House of Commons, and then with a council, a new House of Lords, stuffed full of Republican cronies, and an elected House of Commons. And so it's a complete departure from the idea that the king, in the last analysis, is the person who takes all the decisions, and can call and dismiss Parliament at will, and can create Houses of Lords at will. So it's a huge shift of power. And Sweden and Hungary also asks, what was the attitude of other European rulers to Cromwell? I mean, did they respect him? Other European rulers had to respect Cromwell because he packed an enormous military punch. He had a huge, aggressive professional army. And indeed, he attacked other European powers. Uh, his career started with the war against the Dutch which uh, he didn't really want. But as soon as uh, he stopped that, he attacked Spain and got us Jamaica and Dunkirk. And he really did want that. So European powers found Cromwell somebody powerful and dangerous enough to be worth having as a friend. But they still felt queasy about dealing with this commoner who had murdered his king 
as far as they were concerned, and upturned a monarchical system. He seemed unnatural to them. I mean, were they aware that, that, that something could be replicated in their own nations, that what happened in England could inspire similar uprisings in, in their own countries? Although Cromwell himself toned this down when he was dealing with foreign powers quite sensibly, there were a lot of people in his party and his country who thought that the revolutionary English model should be for export. And the fall of the English monarchy was uh, the first in a domino series that would take out the crowned heads of Europe. I want now to uh, turn to a very popular question among internet search queries. And that pertains to Cromwell's religious beliefs, which you've already touched upon. I mean, what to what extent did Cromwell's faith shape his worldview and by extension, the realms over which he ruled in the 1650s. Cromwell is totally driven by his religious faith. He, after all, has an extraordinary, indeed a unique career. He's a minor gentleman who should never have been in central or even highfalutin local political power. I mean, OK, become a local magistrate, but not rule a county, let alone a kingdom. And so the fact that somehow he's got there must be God's will. He feels incredibly insecure. And by hanging on to this personal relationship with this hotline with the Almighty, he gets the morale, the courage, the determination to keep going. And again and again, he has extraordinary luck in his life, which to him is a sign of divine providence, encouraging him to go on and to pursue the policies that he is following. So his religious faith is utterly sincere. On the other hand, he's prepared to help God along, not just by speaking and fighting superbly, but by telling blatant lies, manipulating the truth in propaganda, being an ace at fake news, and uh, generally being extremely unscrupulous. He'll constantly sell out friends when they become politically inconvenient. And in the end, he ends up deeply respected, deeply feared, and not very trusted. Did he ban Christmas? That's a question from George Samuel. Now, there's this image, isn't there, of the fun police really being out in force during the Protectorate, and of this being a time when revelry and merriment were very much frowned upon. I mean, is there much truth to that conception? Cromwell himself never showed any interest in Christmas, but his party banned it while he was busy doing other things. 1647, when Cromwell's not very active in politics, it's a gap in his career, his bosses' parliament abolish Easter, Christmas, and all the traditional religious holidays, because they regard them as being Catholic and pagan in origin, with some reason. But what this means in practice is they don't abolish Father Christmas and mince pies. They just stop people going to church on Christmas Day. And people who want to celebrate Christmas at home can carry on as much as ever. And when it comes to traditional merrymaking, the ban on Christmas is pretty near a non-starter. They can close the churches 
But we have a great comment by an MP who's in the House of Commons on Christmas Day, 1656, when the House is supposed to sit because it isn't holiday anymore. And he comments on the fact there's practically nobody in the chamber. And Sowley adds that he's been kept awake all night by people celebrating a feast that's no longer supposed to exist. So what did this decision to, if not completely ban Christmas, but to to frown upon people celebrating it. And how did that go down amongst the wider populace? Among the wider populace, the ban on Christmas initially produced riots. The very first Christmas after the ban, there were five towns and cities in which the populace rose up, waving holly bushes, and closed down shops that dared to open and beat up the police and generally uh, were extremely rumbustuous and enthusiastic in bringing Christmas onto the streets. But they were put down by soldiers. And after that, uh, things are quieter, but people just draw the curtains, close the doors and bring out the mince pies. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think the country had been ready for a change back to monarchy ever since the monarchy was removed. It never wanted the republic that it got. And with the combination of warfare, recession and high taxation, it didn't have much incentive to. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Okay, we have a question here from Frog Fan, and that is, 
Why did Cromwell decide to readmit Jewish people back into England who'd been expelled as far back in his 1290? He wants to know, was it out of compassion or religious toleration or was it rather pragmatically motivated? Cromwell's readmission of the Jews to England officially is one of his greatest achievements and most long-lasting bits of legacy. And it also shows the sheer wily complexity of his nature, because his official reason for wanting to let the Jews back in is a prophecy that the second coming of Jesus can't occur until the Jews are converted to Christianity all over the world. And if they're not in England, then they can't be converted here, so Jesus can't come. But the real reason why he's extremely interested in the Jewish community in 1656, which is when it happens, is because he's at war with Spain, he's losing the war, and the Jewish community offer him their trading network as an espionage network. They'll do his intelligence gathering for him, and he accepts this uh, delightedly. And he then attempts to get first his counsel, and then gatherings of clergy and judges and lawyers to agree to readmit the Jews, and they all refuse and tell him actually the buck stops with him. So he does two things which show him being even more slippery. First, the government newspaper starts running articles on how wonderful Jews are and how much they help England. And second, his admiralty court rules on the goods of a Jew living in London that have been seized as those of a foreign national and declare they're those of an English national. So in that moment, one of the most obscure and minor of uh, bits of the legal system, the Admiralty Court, lets the Jews officially live in England. And almost nobody notices. But the Jews begin coming out. They build synagogue and uh, a uh, a meeting house, and there's no great outburst of anti-Semitism. So at that point, Cromwell finally comes out and officially declares they can stay. And so he gets his own way on this point then, basically. Yes, what Cromwell is doing is enabling the Jews to come back in return for services rendered to him, and possibly because of the biblical prophecy to a a good Christian like Cromwell, but avoiding taking responsibility until he's absolutely certain it's not going to rebound on him. So the impression I'm getting from all of these answers is that he was a really canny political operator. Cromwell is a stunningly intelligent and effective soldier and politician, and it's part of the same package. As a general, he never attacks from the front. He always takes people in the rear or on the wing when they're not expecting it. And in politics, he soothes people into a a sense of complacency and then goes for them. And wherever possible, he tries to recruit defeated enemies and bring them over to his side if he thinks they have talent. Okay, now, Cromwell's conduct uh, while on campaign in Ireland is obviously among the most controversial episodes of the entire 17th century. And that leads me to a question from another question from Denise Davidson. And she asks, did contemporaries protest against his treatment of the Irish? So can you give us a bit of, um, first of all, give us a bit of background 
behind what actually happened when he was in Ireland. Cromwell is in Ireland for just under a year, and his career there opens with two spectacular massacres, one at the town of Drogheda, which is stormed by his troops, and he orders his soldiers to kill anybody who has weapons in the town, which is thousands of people. And again at Wexford, a town on the south coast, uh, this time Cromwell doesn't actually give the order. His men break in while Cromwell's negotiating a surrender. And uh, once in, they start slaughtering and carry on a lot. So he can't really be held responsible for what happens at Wexford because the the murdering was well underway by the time he realised it was happening. I don't think he could have called off his troops. But at Drogheda, he's directly responsible. Now, the big problem here is uh, what actually happened at Drogheda, and it's poisonously controversial. Uh, What everybody sensible agrees is that uh, practically all the soldiers holding the town were killed, and a minority of the civilians. But there's some dispute over two big things. One is whether any women or children were killed. Uh, That's difficult to establish. And the other is whether soldiers were murdered after they'd surrendered on promise of their lives. And that's also hard to establish. So there's plenty to argue over here. But just to slaughter three and a half thousand people who are thought to have weapons in their hands is an enormous body count for this period. It's not business as usual, even in the unusually bloody and vicious wars in Ireland. So what do these episodes do to his reputation among his contemporaries? I mean, I'm I'm sure opinion was divided at the time, but can you give us a a flavour of how they reacted? On the whole, Cromwell's own party were thrilled uh, over his butchery at Drogheda and Wexford. Because the numbers spoke for themselves, the way that Cromwell packaged it, and this is what the godly are supposed to do, they're supposed to triumph over overwhelming numbers and get off very lightly. It's what Gideon did in the Bible, it's what Jonathan does in the Bible, defeat many times your numbers because God is on your side. The inveterate enemies of Cromwell, like the royalists, uh, do speak of the horror of the slaughter and of women and children being killed, but then they would. Now, they actually might have been right, but the evidence for this is quite hazy. Now, there were stories in uh, some of the newspapers a few months back reporting on the discovery of a 17th century pamphlet which suggests it's been claimed that Cromwell might not entirely deserve his reputation as a ruthless persecutor of Catholics in Ireland. That pamphlet apparently indicates that Cromwell was willing to allow Irish Catholics the freedom to privately practice their religion without interference. Where, Where do you stand on this pamphlet? Cromwell is very, very hazy over treatment of Catholics. He's absolutely adamant that he won't allow a public profession of Catholic religion, public services, the mass, because his party won't. But he actually doesn't like persecuting people for their religious beliefs, no matter who they are. He doesn't like executions of Catholic priests. And he's prepared to wink at Catholic 
services in private. And he writes to a uh, French minister, a Catholic, uh, boasting about how he's made life easier for English Catholics since he took over. So it's a very subtle, very careful policy on his part. And what it has in common with most of Cromwell's policies is he's really saying different things to different people. Nonetheless, I I trust the fact that uh, he was queasy about religious persecution of anybody. Okay, now we've got a question here from NCOS72, who asks, did the working classes have a better standard of living during the interregnum than under uh, the monarchy? So I guess just to broaden that out a bit, I mean, how were the lives of ordinary people affected on a day-to-day basis from the transition from monarchy to republic? How would it have impacted the normal citizen? Contrary to what one might suppose, under republican rule, ordinary people's lives were considerably worse off than they would have been under the monarchy before the civil wars. They're better than they were in the civil wars because they're not being looted by or walked over by armies. But uh, the republican regime is distinguished by uh, two constant factors. One is a huge army and navy, and they cost, so taxes are really heavy. Taxes on everyone's property, but also sales taxes and all the goods that people buy in the shops, which forces up the price. And also, the Republic is almost always at war. It's at war with the Irish, and then the Scots, and then the Dutch, and then the Spanish. There is virtually no peace abroad throughout this time, and that's very bad for trade. Warfare, especially with foreign privateers sweeping up English merchant shipping, sends the economy into recession. So let's talk about um, some of Cromwell's other policies. Sigmund Librarian wants to know, were there any reforms in education, schools, universities, etc.? In theory, the Republic should have been a great time for public education because Cromwell's party talks about it and the need for it. But in practice, the resources for expanding education tend to get spent on the armed forces for the regime to survive and beat its foreign enemies. So there's practically nothing left for educational expansion. There is uh, a project to found a third university after Oxford and Cambridge at Durham in the north, but it fails. And so really the effect of the Republic on educational provision is absolutely minimal. And it's not that great a time for innovation either in science, economics. There's an undercurrent going on all through the 17th century towards better scientific knowledge. And it is still swelling in the Republican period. But the really great breakthroughs tend to occur before and after, especially after with the foundation of the Royal Society. Okay, you've also talked about uh, Cromwell's foreign policy in regards uh, to England's European neighbours. What about his attitude to colonialism? Was that something he was at all interested in? Cromwell himself never shows any interest in colonies, apart from shipping off captured royalists and Irish as uh, short-term slaves in the sweatier colonies. 
But he does give uh, a tremendous boost to what's going to become the British Empire by capturing Jamaica. He doesn't intend to capture Jamaica. He intends to capture a, a much bigger island, the one that's now shared between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. But his men are beaten off it shamefully to Cromwell's stupefied disbelief. And they grab Jamaica as a consolation prize because it's much more weakly defended and it's smaller, but it's much more weakly defended because it's undeveloped. The staple agricultural produce in 1655 is mosquitoes. It's going to be a rich sugar island in another few generations, but it needs a huge amount of investment. And when Cromwell decides to keep it, it's surrounded by Spanish enemies who keep attacking. So it becomes a sinkhole for government money for many years. And that again helps bring down the financial system. Now I'm going to now turn to a, an, an, another popular question on the internet that relates to Cromwell's military acumen. How good was he as a commander on the battlefield and what sets him apart from his contemporaries? Cromwell's probably one of the best soldiers that Britain's ever produced. He's up there with Marlborough and Wellington. He's certainly the best soldier of the British Civil Wars. And he's somebody who learns on the job. Yep. He manages to cover all the bases. He's personally inspiring. He can make great speeches to his soldiers. He initially leads them from the front quite dangerously to himself, so they know he's been there with them. And when he becomes a general in charge of entire armies, he manoeuvres them perfectly onto the best ground. He always makes sure he hits the enemy from a direction in which he's not expected. And he always tries to concentrate overwhelming strength against the enemy at the point at which he does strike. I mean, was he a great student of military history or is this something he kind of um, innovated as he went along? We don't see much sign of Cromwell reading books about anything. <laughs> right. Uh, but we do see him learning on the job as a soldier. He makes a few initial mistakes, but then he picks up from that. He's a great learner. And what do you rate as his finest hour on the battlefield? His finest hour is almost certainly the charge that establishes his reputation once and for all, the point from which he never looks back. And it's the biggest battle of the English Civil War. It's Marston Moor, the 2nd of July, 1644. Cromwell's been given the massive left wing of a huge Allied army, commanding the cavalry on it. He's got about 4,000 horsemen from his own East Anglian army. He's got about another 1,000 Scots behind him and is facing anything from half to two-thirds of his number of royalists. Yeah. But he's got a downhill slope in front of him, and he spends the afternoon as the army sit looking at each other, getting uh, experts to clear away the bushes and fill in the ditches so that his men have a completely level slope in front. And then when his commanders decide the time has come to attack, he takes the enemy completely by surprise. He is among them with his first shock of troops within minutes yeah. and they never recover. He rolls up the whole right wing of the Royalist army, which is a very big army itself, and turns the whole battle, wins it. Now, here's a question from Peach Sketch 2. Um, that person asks, why didn't Cromwell plan for his succession properly? So, 
Can you explain, go into a little bit of detail on the final stages of Cromwell's time in power and tell us why the Republic that he'd worked so hard to forge over those few years fell to endure long beyond his death? Cromwell's role in the fall of the English Republic is is a complicated one. He was undoubtedly its most talented leader. He undoubtedly held it together very well when he was in charge. He takes care, at least until the last minute, to avoid naming a successor. And this is for two reasons. The first is just as soon as he rose to power, loads of people were saying he wants to make himself king, he wants to found a new royalist family. This is uh, a hypocrite mouthing stuff about religion and liberty when he's after personal ambition. And so he takes care not to promote his family as a new royal family and not to promote his eldest surviving son, Richard, as a Prince of Wales. But when he's dying, he actually has no alternative but Richard. He's got a deeply mutually hostile, divided set of followers around him. And Richard is simply the best option, the one who upsets people least. And that's why Richard is picked. But unfortunately, Oliver can take a lot of the blame himself for the divisions among his supporters. He has very carefully balanced people of different views and different backgrounds against each other, almost like a chess grandmaster, to make sure that none of them can ever combine against him because they hate each other so much that he is all they have in common. And when he has taken out the picture, they implode. Was the country ready for a change by then? They they had enough of Cromwellian rule. I think the country had been ready for a change back to monarchy ever since the monarchy was removed. It never wanted the republic that it got. And with the combination of warfare, recession and high taxation, it didn't have much incentive to. Do we see many protests during that time? Were people out on the streets protesting against Cromwell? There are lots of risings against Republican rule. There are lots of local riots against aspects of it. But one of the spin-off effects of having an enormous peacekeeping armed force is that you can unleash your soldiers and anybody who makes a noise, and they repress them very quickly. And the punishments are quite severe. So Oliver dies... um and Richard's administration is quite short-lived. Is that right? How, how long does he stay in power for? Richard's in power for about six months. And for a very short amount of time then. And is it evident from the start of Richard's time in power that it's not going to last very long? Most people think Richard's doing a rather good job. Oh, right, okay. And suspect that uh, he might establish a new royal family because he's a crowd-pleaser. And one of his crowd-pleasing aspects is he's willing to sacrifice the radical aims of the army uh, in religion and uh, with regard to military power in order to please the people. And so he forces uh, his army, Oliver's army, which he's inherited, to work with the parliament, even when the parliament upsets the army. And then when the army starts threatening Richard, because Richard has never really been part of it, his father put him in cold storage in the walls to avoid seeming to promote his son Mm. and further his ambitions. Uh, Then Richard decides to stage a military coup and remove his enemies in the army. 
but he bungles that completely because he he completely underestimates the hostility of the ordinary soldiers to the parliament and their absolute commitment to the ideals of the English revolution so overwhelmingly the army turns on richard and he tries to break it and breaks him okay so in 1660 the monarchy is restored under charles ii on the face of it the status quo has prevailed and the nation has kind of reverted to how it had been before the chaos of the civil war but i'm guessing it's a little more complex than that so finally ronald can you sort of explain to us how the interregnum this period which Cromwell dominated between the death of Charles I and the restoration of Charles II. Can you explain how that impacted upon the nation in the long term, what his long-term legacies are? A simple way of summing up the legacy of our one and only republic, the so-called interregnum, is to say that it held open the wounds inflicted upon Britain and Ireland by the civil wars. They weren't allowed to heal, and as a result, the old Britain could never return, and the old Ireland. In Ireland, a Protestant ascendancy was established, which lasted until the 20th century, and still divides Ireland to this very day. The Scots learned that the English without kings were even more dangerous than the English with kings, and became very pro-monarchist. And the English changed their religious and their political system for good. The Church of England was shattered by the wars, and Oliver's determination to allow people freedom of choice in religion allowed large numbers of new radical Protestant denominations to appear, like Baptists and Quakers, Presbyterians, uh, Independents, Congregationalists. And that meant that even when the old church came back, it was too late to bring all these people back into it. And we've been a religiously diverse society ever since. And the inability to find a compromise settlement after the wars that would please parliamentarians and a lot of royalists, the adoption of an extreme radical settlement instead, left us with a two-party system ever since operating parliaments. So Cavaliers and Roundheads became Whigs and Tories. Whigs and Tories became Liberals and Conservatives. And Liberals and Conservatives became Labour and Tory. And here we are. And did it kind of mean that um, monarchs treaded a lot more carefully with Parliament going forward? After the Republic, Parliament's a permanent feature of the political landscape. Until then, it had been an intermittent one. This doesn't mean we're going to head naturally for a constitutional monarchy, because if the monarch can turn Parliament into a rubber stamp, then that's still the death of democracy. But nonetheless, after the civil wars, Parliament has to be there. And how should we remember Cromwell today, in your opinion? We can remember him as a unique achievement. And he's certainly, in the popular memory, one of our greatest ever Britons, just after Churchill and Shakespeare. He was a man of quite exceptional military and political ability, and a man of undoubted piety and commitment to religious freedom, at least for Cromwell's sort of Protestant. But he was also ruthless, devious, 
untrustworthy and expert at manipulating the truth. So there was a shadow side to him as well. That was Professor Ronald Hutton. If you're interested in finding out more about the Lord Protector, then check out Ronald's book, The Making of Oliver Cromwell, which is published by Yale University Press. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.